What if God had bigger plans for us than to win a debate? You're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. Our guest on this episode is going to be Bill Henson, the founder and president of a Lead Them Home. I'll be honest with you, this didn't go where I thought it would, but I kind of like where it ended up. So I thought this was going to be a conversation about how to maintain your Christian worldview, your gospel witness, when you're talking with people who don't use the same language that you do. How do you communicate your Christian distinctives clearly when you can't control the terms of the conversation? And I thought that would be important because whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or like a Libertarian or a Democratic Socialist or whether you want to burn the whole system to the ground or whether you want to conscript everyone around you into anarcho-syndicalist communes where we all take it in turn to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Whatever your politics are, if you're listening to this and you're a dedicated Christian and you're living in the U.S., there are some very real ways in which your faith makes it hard to communicate with other people about government and civic life. Most of the leaders of your political parties and most of the officials sitting in your government institutions, and even just most of the people in your town and in your country who have the same politics as you, don't actually share your commitment to the Christian faith. That means that even when you agree on policy, you have a very different understanding about the nature and responsibilities of humanity. You have different beliefs about the purposes of community and society. You have different expectations about the results of history. And your job as a Christian isn't just to help those people win the political horse race. You have to actually demonstrate and help them understand why winning isn't enough. Why believing in Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and eventual return matters. You have to be able to communicate that. But the language and the attitudes of politics and government fundamentally don't reflect those truths. It's hard to demonstrate that you believe your opponents are made in the image of God when our political culture tells us that people who disagree with us exist to be defeated. Christians are supposed to be honest about our own flaws, and we should be brave about acknowledging the moral failings of our own political allies or our political parties as a whole. But when those moral failings come up or when someone points them out, the normal way to react is to deflect attention away from them or to point at the problems on the other side and attack those people for the same flaws that someone was just pointing out about us. In environments like this, learning to communicate Christianly Learning to go into a conversation that doesn't have a Christian frame of reference or doesn't have Christian norms and finding ways to articulate the gospel within that context, within that context that's already there, that's really hard. And that would have been a great topic of conversation with Bill because that's sort of what Lead Them Home does. 
But instead of doing that within the political community, Lead Them Home does it within the gay community. They train evangelical clergy for ministry to people who identify as LGBT. And when we talk about people who identify as LGBT, that's not a universal term. Different people use different terms or even different sets of acronyms with more letters or fewer. But LGBT is one of the more common ones, and it's pretty easy to say. So I'm going to use that. And when we're talking about people who identify as LGBT, we're talking about a people group in this country who are more likely to be homeless, more likely to be the victims of abuse and assault and other violent crimes, a group of people who are at much higher risk for depression and other mental health issues, and are more likely than average to die by suicide. And while these are all things that a lot of churches try to provide relief for, there are also very real barriers, historical ones, cultural ones, philosophical ones, that make it hard for a lot of people who identify as LGBT to get help or accept help from church communities. And those barriers cut both ways. As the language and beliefs about sex and sexuality change in our country, a lot of ministry leaders struggle with even knowing how to provide immediate relief to people who identify as LGBT, how to help them get off the streets or get medical help or find hope in the faith of crushing depression. Knowing how to just provide that really specific acute relief is hard enough, let alone helping their LGBT neighbors actually learn to develop a new identity in Christ. Lead Them Home equips ministry leaders for dealing with those hard issues, those hard questions, without compromising their biblical ethics on sex and sexuality, without conforming to the patterns of the world where the use of sex is concerned. So I thought Bill Henson would be a great person to talk to to get some advice about articulating the gospel when you don't actually control the language of the conversation. How do you get into conversation with people about things they care about when the fundamental language you want to use might make them shut down or might be a non-starter? What this conversation ended up being about, though, was really power. And that makes sense, because the whole reason I wanted to have a conversation about how to engage in political conversation and witness in those conversations without controlling the terms of debate is because we often can't control the terms of debate. Christian power in American public life is waning. And I'm not talking about Christian activists being less influential, and I'm not talking about whether our laws and our policies represent Christian values or reflect Christian virtues or protect Christian practices. I'm talking about the power of Christian character and Christian behavior in public life. Christian attitudes are no longer normative in our politics and in our government. Whether you're running for office or whether you're visiting your representative to talk about issues facing your community or whether you're showing up at a community forum, the kind of behavior that mostly gets rewarded in politics, in government, in our civic life, the most effective way to conduct yourself if you want to make sure that the things you're pushing for or hoping for actually get passed, is usually not to behave in ways that really demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. 
really clearly articulating and demonstrating love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are becoming less and less likely to be winning strategies. But they are Christian strategies. They're what God has given us to measure our behavior. And if we're living out trust, if we're demonstrating trust in God's promises, it means demonstrating those qualities, even when that's not the norm and even when that's not the behavior that gets rewarded. So I'm really glad that we had a conversation with Bill about power. Because of his work, Bill talks quite a bit about how to handle waning power in regard to Christian sexual morality no longer being normative for most people in our country. But it's relevant for this podcast because living out your trust in God's promises when it looks like you're losing, or when doing so might make you less influential or less respected, that's a conversation that's definitely worth wrestling with for Christians who are trying to figure out what it means to live out their faith in their public life, in their civic obligations, in their political commitments. So let's get to the interview. And then I'll come back to pull out one more topic from the very end of it, and then we can move into prayer together. And I'm really excited to have the chance to sit down and talk to you. So let me start by asking, you've worked with something like 45,000 pastors over the last 10 or 12 years, uh, and the bulk of them have been in the past five years. As we're in this period where not just about sexuality, but about a whole host of issues, the U.S. is really going through a major conversation about what our cultural priorities are. As we go through this period of conversation where Christians think it might be important to be involved in the conversation, but we might not necessarily have the critical mass or even the agreement within the church to establish terms of debate that we think are healthier than what the majority of people are using. How have you seen pastors respond to that kind of difficult circumstance? Sure. I, I think that uh, a tremendous amount of change has occurred in culture and in the church in the last uh, 15 years with uh, the bulk of that change occurring in the last really seven or eight years. In the founding of Lead Them Home, there was a realization as early as 2003 that what we might term the, the culture war is not working. <laughs> this may be doomed for defeat. This model, even if it was successful, it might not actually achieve gospel, gospel principles. In other words, if a religious majority actually does achieve power, will we use that in a generous way or will we <laughs> mistreat people, if you will? So as early as 2003, um, there are deep convictions that um, that the conversation has to be recaptured through the gospel, not through debate. Not through a particular ideology, but through the revelation of the presence of Christ uh, in people's lives, who we may have different views on. Uh, it, at that time, from about 2003 to 2006, it became increasingly apparent that the culture war was lost. That our, our country... Uh, cultural norms shifting at such a rapid pace. We're so far behind the curve. There's no way to really stop that. Now, what was interesting is we were realizing that we're starting to form a missionary organization that would be able to operate well in that context. But much of the evangelical church really not recognizing that there was a loss 
to a culture war but until about the years 2010 through 2013. There's a huge gap in that time frame where culture is winning and is going to win on certain uh, um, laws uh, around the country at the state level, at the federal level. Uh, the culture is going to win. The church with its uh, conservative view, if you will, is going to lose, but it hasn't yet played out yet. So in that time period, uh, Lead Them Home decided to establish a missionary organization that would be uh, beyond the debate uh, and would focus on equipping the church to be prepared to operate possibly as a minority voice in culture rather than a majority voice. Now, shifting from a majority voice to a minority voice, that's not just something we easily accept. Usually, the power has to be stripped out of your hands before we'll let go of it. And indeed, it feels like power has kind of been stripped out of uh, the hands of evangelical leaders in this area. Um, there's a backlash against evangelicals. There's a, a sense in which we have not treated people so well. There's a sense in which the way we express what we call God's love is done in a way that makes people feel rejected or excluded or hateful, that, that kind of thing. So uh, the first step in this process is realizing that, oh wow, what if, what if we didn't just lose by the world standards? What if we didn't just lose power out of happenstance? What if God had bigger plans for us than to win a debate or to win in regards to a regulation or a law? What if there was something much deeper he wanted to accomplish, but he could not accomplish it if we held earthly power? What if he could only accomplish it if we actually lost all earthly power? So Lead Them Home was founded on a principle of laying down our lives for people that we may have a difference of opinion with. We were founded on the principle of laying down our lives for people no matter what. Dying a thousand deaths to contextualize the presence of Christ to people where they are as they are beyond or transcending the, these issues of debate and who's the majority voice, who's the minority voice. That's a painful process. To, they don't call it dying a thousand deaths for nothing. To die a thousand deaths, to lose power, to have nothing left is actually a very painful process. Um, the great thing is God can resurrect something from that. So whereas uh, many evangelicals might... Uh, bemoan the idea that we have lost cultural power. From a gospel, a kingdom perspective, it could be a tremendous work of God that is about to unfold. And I think uh, God's people losing their power is the beginning of God being able to do something amazing. If you look in the Old Testament, there's this trajectory of God's people being close to him and then being close to him and comfortable. And then being comfortable and moving away from him and then remaining to be comfortable and away from him. But then suddenly devastation starts to occur in their lives, but they still don't return to him. They keep persisting. They keep pushing forward until finally they get to a place where they are such a minority voice, so persecuted, so oppressed, so attacked, that they actually get desperate enough, maybe not even to repent of their own sins. They get desperate enough initially to cry out to God. And every time that they cry out to God, 
God's voice returns, for my name's sake, I heard them. For my name's sake, I heard them. Not because they were good, I heard them. For my name's sake, I heard my people cry out, and I will answer their prayer. So as we've navigated this, Lead Them Home has cultivated a desperation of crying out to God for solutions rather than looking for earthly earthly solutions, if you will. Now, in the earthly realm, we have to live in the here and now and do things that will cultivate a gospel witness in our world, but we need to desperately cling to him and depend upon him to do things that we don't have the power to do. If the church loses cultural authority and loses cultural power, um, it might actually make our church communities less attractive to the power hungry and more attractive to people who are desperate for salvation. Oh, I just think that that's a great point. I think it's kind of like the refining fire. Maybe God takes away false forms of power we rely upon to cleanse, maybe not initially culture, to cleanse us, his people. And those that remain are those that are faithful and willing to go through that process. And not that others that walk away won't eventually be have a born-again experience or come back to God or whatever that looks like. But maybe it will be a certain refining fire. If God ultimately wants his power to be perfected in our weakness, we can expect to be put in situations where we will be the weak or the minority or the persecuted or the oppressed. And in the history of God's people, our brothers and sisters in Christ have fallen into those categories over and over again. We're the exception, not the rule. And so I don't want persecution. I don't want oppression. I kind of like having power, to be quite honest. But there's something very beautiful that I've experienced in losing my power. The kind of power that I lost was not more at the corporate systemic level of society, although I felt kind of the pain of those things too. It was more in the idea of in the work with individuals, watching how little impact I had to be able to change what people believed. Now, I gave up trying to, quote-unquote, change what people believe a long time ago. But in the early days of the ministry, I kind of thought that's what it was about. And I quickly was learning that the more that I attempted to try to change what people believe, the more that absolutely nothing was accomplished. There was no fruit of the work. When I had to let go of that idea, there were days when I was in a fetal position under my desk, just wondering, what else do I have to offer? If I can't seem to accomplish change in people's lives, what else do I have left? And guess what? At that time, early in my work, I had nothing left. And it was in the nothing left that I became desperate. What on earth am I here for then? Why on earth did I leave this nice corporate job that was so comfortable? What is this mission about? And it's in that nothing place, that desperate place, that crying out to God place that literally he raised up a calling that was entrusted to lead them home that has become beautiful. In other words, losing power is painful, but on the other side of losing power, if God lifts us up and perfects his strength in our weakness, there's something amazingly beautiful that rises out of those ashes. One of the things 
we're called to do as Christians is follow in the pattern of Jesus, run the race set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We tend to, and I say we, I frequently tend to forget that following in the footsteps of Jesus means being rejected, marginalized, and still pouring myself out for the people who rejected and marginalized me to make more room for the Holy Spirit to work in their lives. That was the pattern for his life, but it's also been the pattern for, in a lot of cases, his church after him. Uh, The church gained ground and grew in Rome as they were rejected and marginalized, but still kept serving Rome's poor, Rome's destitute, Rome's sick. A lot of the most vibrant churches I know similarly started with like a small remnant of people seeing a community that was not served at all and praying. It's usually like, it's always a group of 15 to 20 people who prayed for 20 or 30 years for a church in this town or in this neighborhood to start. And looking back to the Old Testament, there's constantly that pattern God works out in his people in Israel of, like you were saying, the desolation, but a faithful remnant that then rebuilds the, I don't want to use the phrase spiritual dynasty, but uh, rebuilds the community of faith. Uh, God works through them to make his name known and his character understood again. And then when it's time to spread his word and make himself known in a new uh, empire or in a new region or in a new country. It's, you know, he sends one person out with his family or the whole community gets devastated and brought in as refugees and rebuilds again. I don't know if I've ever really in any kind of formal way been asked to wrestle with what that pattern of a faithful remnant means for life in a country that has been largely Christianized. I want to be careful that no one feels criticized because it hurts to lose power. But, oh, do we have to manage our heart attitude as we're in that unexpected place. So imagine what it looks like to a secularized world that kind of views us as the oppressors, if you will. Um, In the context of my ministry, the people group we seek to reach is are LGBT people. So clearly for years, LGBT people would assign a lot of the reason for why they've been persecuted to religion and Christianity in particular, evangelicals even more specifically. So imagine in a world that now sees this power dynamic shift in a very rapid amount of time. Although we can't underestimate the decades that... (laughs) LGBT activists worked for their human rights. From their perspective, it might not seem like the culture shift happened so rapidly. But from an evangelical or conservative perspective, it seemed to happen very rapidly. To have that happen so quickly leaves us very prone to acting out or expressing attitudes or saying words that are not so helpful. So for example, at this time, if God is the one who possibly even stripped earthly power from us, then we need to be submitting to the idea that he may be wanting to do something deeper of a work, in a, a, more, a, a deeper work in the church. But it's not easy to lose power. So it's easy to complain. It's easy to 
to whine and some of the language that we use as evangelicals as this cultural shift has changed so rapidly is we whine and it does not come across good in other words if we want to have an act of witness of christ if that's our primary purpose we need to be the last people that are whining at the loss of our cultural power i'm not saying that every listener is a whiner i'm saying in all of us the process of losing power can trigger us to act with emotion and with attitude and with words that are not so helpful. So I think that it starts with humility, a humility of acceptance of the reality of what's happened. I think we need to live in the humility of accepting the current circumstances and asking the, the forward question, where do we go from here? How do we carry forward the gospel from here? How do we reach this culture from this point forward? In other words, we always need to be recentered, surrendered to Christ at the cross. Oh, he has an invitation for us too. Come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest for your soul. So when we are burdened and we are grieving the loss of all these shifts in our culture, well, we have an invitation to come to Christ in that. And if we come to Christ in that, he will empower us to have the right attitude, the right ideas, and the right words to say to accomplish his kingdom. Because it may not look like it, but his kingdom is forcefully advancing into this world. And, and that, that mission that he pronounced thousands of years ago is still occurring today. We have to place our hope, our entire faith in that. God does not need our cultural power to accomplish the kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. Every Christian is called informally to be a missionary, to be a witness for Christ in the time and the place God has put them. If you're looking around at the time and place around you and you're complaining about it, it could be honest lamentation. There's a difference between honest lamentation sure. and whining. But um, if you're complaining about the direction it's going in or wishing that it was more like it was earlier in your life or for a previous generation, that seems to me almost like wasted energy. It seems to me like tantamount to, and I think this is something I might have said on the podcast before, but tantamount to complaining about the mission field God has yeah. given you. Yes. Uh, yeah, to put, to put this in context... We've thought of America as a Christian nation. That makes it distinct from foreign mission lands. But compared to the kingdom of God, America is not a Christian nation. It is a foreign land. So we are foreign missionaries in a foreign land. And missionaries trying to reach people in foreign lands, whether they're unreached, unengaged, or marginalized in some way, missionaries understand that to reach people, you have to get to know them. It's not about only having something to tell people. It's about posturing yourself as a listener and a learner of people's history, culture, and language. And learning from that and making modifications, optimizations, improvements in how I speak to people, how I engage them, how I serve them, because now I know the love language by which they speak, the culture by which they speak, what language means to them or doesn't mean. So in this question about history, it's really important. If we want to be effective missionaries to all the people in our world, but 
in the context of Lita Pump's work. Okay, that was my interview with Bill Henson of Lead Them Home. The last point he made is, I think, maybe the most important one for a lot of us to get our heads around. And maybe that point at the end is also the point that makes the rest of that conversation workable. Uh, At the very end of the interview, he said that, from the point of view of the kingdom of God, the kingdom that's already established in the heavens, that already has these outposts or embassies or seeds scattered around the world, this kingdom that's going to come in full at the end of all things when we see a new heavens and a new earth because the old heavens and the old earth will have passed away. When you're looking at America from that kingdom, this country is a foreign land. When you're rooted in that kingdom, every country is a foreign land. Now, America is a foreign land that has, at various times, had tremendous influence directly exerted upon it by different corners of the church, by different embassies of the kingdom of God. It even has a history or a legacy of citizens of the kingdom of God helping to found this foreign land. And for large stretches of our history, some aspects of Christian morality have actually been pretty in vogue for most of the people in this foreign land. But being historically influenced by the kingdom of God in that way shouldn't be confused with actually being the kingdom of God. It shouldn't be confused with actually being the Christian kingdom, the kingdom whose head of state is Christ. Christians in the U.S. have dual citizenship. The fact that we're Christians, that we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, should give us a different approach to the powers and privileges and responsibilities and stresses and temptations that come from also being citizens of the U.S. If our citizenship in heaven is just making us more excited about our politics, if it's just making us fight the political fight harder than our non-Christian allies— then we're probably not taking our citizenship in heaven seriously enough. Our citizenship in heaven shouldn't just push us deeper into our partisan ranks. It should also be challenging the way we think about our partisan commitments. It should be making us think twice about how we want to exercise our earthly citizenship. Because, as we talked about at the top of this episode, the culture of citizenship and the culture of political engagement in this country are changing, and they're not changing into something that looks more like having deep trust in the Christian promise. They're on a trend to become angrier, more fearful, more apocalyptic, even more tribalized, if you can believe that. And when we start getting engaged in the public square, the pressure we feel to behave that way, to behave kind of in line with that anger or that fear or that tribalization, is going to get stronger. And that pressure doesn't just come from the outside. That temptation is there inside of us as well. The culture of our politics doesn't create that temptation. It just aids it and abets it. It enables it. It makes it easier for us to give into it and makes the temptation harder to resist. People who believe our earthly citizenship is the only citizenship we have don't have anywhere near as many reasons to resist that temptation as we do. And people who believe that we have a heavenly citizenship, but don't take that fact seriously, 
don't have the resources to resist that temptation. But remembering that we have a heavenly citizenship and that it places an all-encompassing demand on our hearts, souls, minds, and strengths. Believing that we have a heavenly citizenship and that our heavenly king is the one who sent us into this world and set us up for the responsibilities and privileges and struggles of earthly citizenship. Knowing that, turning to him desperately and bringing that knowledge to him is the best way I can think of to deal with seasons when acting like a Christian might make it harder to get things done. Let's pray. Good and gracious King, we are your subjects and you have commissioned us to be here, in this place, at this time. That means you've entrusted us with a lot of responsibilities and we are in awe of that fact. We're humbled by the challenge of it. But we confess we aren't always sure what to do about it. We get really clear or really exciting ideas in our heads about what a country or a state or a community that reflects you more clearly might look like. But then the temptation to betray your commands in the pursuit of that goal is so, so strong. Especially because it can so often feel that behaving like a Christian will probably make it harder to accomplish Christian goals. But you've been very clear about how you want your ambassadors to behave, and we thank you for forgiving us when we've failed to act in line with that vision. And we ask you to forgive us for our lack of trust in you, our belief that if we don't win, the world is doomed, our tendency to forget that you've promised to make all things new and we can trust your promises. Thank you for the relief of not needing to reshape the world into our own image. And thank you for the joy of getting to live now as examples of what life will be like when your kingdom comes in full. Give us a vision for the kingdom that is to come, instead of fearful desperation to find safety or success in this kingdom. And let that vision of the kingdom that is to come empower us to behave differently. Differently from our friends, from our neighbors, from our allies, and even our opponents. We aren't asking this for their sake. We want them all to see you, and we want them all to know you, and we want them all to celebrate your coming when your son returns. But we're not asking you to help us change their hearts. We're not asking you for the power to change what people believe, as Bill put it. We're asking for your help so that we can just reflect you clearly. Your son's name is on us. We carry it with us into this world when we are called Christians. And it is a name that is so worthy that we don't want to dishonor it. Thank you for entrusting us with it and help us to conduct ourselves in ways that don't dishonor your name. It is in your son's holy and worthy and honorable name that we pray. Amen. Okay, this has been the Christian Civics Podcast presented by the Center for Christian Civics. For those of you who want to know more about our organization, I have some very good news for you. We actually have another episode of the podcast coming out next week, and it's going to include some updates on our work and the first part of a two-part conversation with my friend and co-founder, Danny Leva. But, there's a but, this episode isn't going to be going out to everyone. 
this is a bonus episode. Our bonus episodes are special extras for our supporters and donors. So if you want to get in on this, there's still time. Just visit our website, christiancivics.org, and make a donation today, a donation of any size. Once you do that, you'll be on the list. You'll be on the list, and you will get that bonus episode when it goes out next week. And that's it for our show this week. A big thanks to Bill Henson and the team at Lead Them Home. If you want to learn more about their work, you can email them at info at leadthemhome.org. You can also visit their website, leadthemhome.org, to purchase a copy of Guiding Families of LGBT Plus Loved Ones. And that's the leading resource on parent guidance for when your youth come out. If you've been enjoying this episode or this podcast as a whole, please go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts and rate us and leave us a positive review. If you have a negative review, you can visit our website, christiancivics.org, and send us the negative review using the contact form that you can find there. We do want to make sure that this podcast is actually useful to you. So if it's not, we do want to know why, and we want to have a chance to uh, grow and get better at it before you start leaving public reviews. If you have any other questions, any requests, any topics or problems you want us to cover in future episodes, same deal. Go to christiancivics.org and send those questions in using the contact form. All right, this has been the Christian Civics Podcast. Visit our website, christiancivics.org, for more information on our work empowering the church to be lamps on stands across the political spectrum. 